We all have learned over the past 18 months about post-traumatic stress disorder and first responders. And I think that we all have a much, much clearer idea of what PTSD is. But today I'm talking to Rob Levin. And Rob is a senior uh, member of a firefighting department. And he is part of a Center for Addiction and Mental Health campaign that started on Friday, which was Suicide Prevention Day. Rob, thank you for coming on the show, first of all, and talking so openly about PTSD, because I know it's something that people, especially in in positions like yours with, you know, you got to be a macho guy and all of that kind of stuff. So I imagine over the years, it's been very, very difficult for you to first personally um, accept PTSD and move forward, but then as well within your fire department and your firefighter friends. But can we start with what during your life, you've been a firefighter for 30 years. So how did PTSD start to come into your life? Well, first of all, thank you for, uh, you know, inviting me on today. It's, it's, it's greatly appreciated. I love the opportunity to get the message out about mental health. Um, as for PTSD with me, um, the, the funny thing about PTSD is it changes you, but the change is so slow that you don't even realize it's happening until, you know, it, it totally impacts your day-to-day life. So for me, um, just prior to me reaching out for help, um, yeah, my life was a complete mess. Uh, I describe it as like one of those Jenga games with the, you know, you build a tower of blocks and you pull a block out and you hope it doesn't all come crumbling down. That's what my life felt like every single day. Um, I had a lot of emotional outbursts, um, angry all the time, lost interest in everything that I had interest in previously that I enjoyed, Uh, flashbacks, um, intrusive memories, sleep disturbances. Um, one of my more problematic symptoms was hypervigilance. Um, well, I think we all understand what a flashback is, but what is hypervigilance? So hypervigilance is in my case, uh, I can give you an example of, of how it plays out in, in mine. Um, if I go to a grocery store and I do do grocery store, right. grocery store shops, as part of my exposure therapy with my occupational therapist. But my challenge is, is I need to be able to subconsciously, I need to be able to feel safe. That's what PTSD is about is if you're not feeling safe, your amygdala kicks in the fight or flight response. So when I go into a grocery store, one of the things that I do subconsciously to help myself feel safe is to track everybody everything that's moving that i can see moving so one of the things that i used to do and i never realized was i would always do my grocery shops very first thing in the morning like eight in the morning and i always was thought i was doing that because you know it freed up the rest of the day in reality it was a way of avoiding crowds if i went later in the day um so yeah for me in my case my hypervigilance i'm always scanning my entire environment all the time, looking for things that could jeopardize my safety or things that are dangerous. That's and, exhausting. 
exactly. It is. And the problem is, if I go to a grocery store and I'm, you know, and there's 10 people in the store at the time, I can track 10 people. But when there's too many people to track, that's when the anxiety starts building because you become overwhelmed. And the same goes for me with sounds, right? Uh, I need to be able to identify sounds that I hear. And if I go into a crowd where there's so many people talking, I can't identify those the sounds because there's too many and it becomes overwhelming. So that's an example of hypervigilance. Right. A lot of people were think, would think you're just being smart going to the grocery store early in the morning and not even thinking twice about it. Yeah. Now, intrusive thinking, what is... Intrusive thoughts or intrusive mm-hmm. memories? Intrusive thoughts, yeah. Yeah, they are um, memories that, that um, just appear... Um, usually there's a trigger to it, for example, um, those intrusive memories can be distressing. Sometimes they're not distressing. Um, for example, um, I'll give you an example of an intrusive memory and how it triggered. Um, a few days ago, my wife was making a, a blueberry rhubarb cobbler and she opened the oven and I'm, I'm looking in at it and, you know, I see the, the blueberry sort of bubbling and immediately that, that bubbling triggered a whole series of memories of calls I've been to that involved roof fires where the tar bubbles. So there's an example of, you know, like you know, I was just flooded with, with, with memories of a whole bunch of different calls that, so that's an intrusive memory. Just it, it's triggered. It comes out of the, out of the blue. Right. Um, and for me, those ones weren't that distressing, but there are other memories that come up that are distressing. Right. That's so, interesting about the bubbling and the blueberry, because oh, yeah. I thought yeah. you were going to say when you said it brought up a, me- a memory, I thought you were going to say about a fire that was started by a nope. fire in an oven. Nope. So for uh, you I'll, to I'll see you, that and then make that yeah. connection to tar bubbling is. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, my kids were with my wife and I up at a cottage and my daughter cracked her neck. You know, just a little almost like a self-adjustment like a chiropractor would do. And as soon as I heard that crack, I was flooded with memories of every single person that I've done CPR on. Because a lot of times when you do CPR, you break ribs. And that sound that my daughter made when she was just cracking her neck is, in my case, is, is the sound that triggered me to remember all of the people have done CPR on and some of them cracking ribs and some of them not. So there's another example of, of, you know, an intrusive memory that gets triggered by something as opposed to a flashback, which uh, plays out more like a movie. Um, A flashback, for example, when it plays out as a movie, um, how do, let me explain this. The difference between an intrusive memory and a flashback is the, the awareness of time. So with an intrusive memory, yeah, they're just memories that pop in your head that surprise you. That, But a flashback, for the period of time you're having the flashback, you have no recollection of the current time and place. You're, you are back in the time when, that, when the event happened that's, that the flashback's about. So for example, when and some of my problematic calls happened early on in my career, so when I was having flashbacks, literally 
during the length of time that I'm having that flashback, it was as if every single part of me believed that I was back, you know, 26 years ago. So that that's the difference in uh, a flashback is is a is a dissociative event where you sort of dissociate from your consciousness, whereas an intrusive memory is just a memory. <laughs> and this is this is you still having these uh, PTSD symptoms after being in treatment, after mm-hmm. understanding what's going on. So it's now uh, I, I'm thinking of the the firefighters who have not been able to talk about their their uh, their PTSD and what must be happening in yeah. their minds. And honestly, I don't know how they go to work every day, much less go to uh, a fire call. Yep. The, 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 the challenge is for any first responder, whether it's a firefighter or police, paramedic, corrections, dispatch, is when you haven't sought out help and treatment, and these things are happening, a lot of times people will use alcohol and drugs to help to help cope with the pain, the emotional pain that's going on. And that leads to, in some cases, you know, substance abuse issues, which is another comorbidity with, with PTSD and depression. I want to just take one of the examples that um, you have on your website, by the way, Rob's website is leaven.ca. And please go there and read some of Rob's writings and look at his artwork, which which I'm going to touch with him because it's so mind-blowing. But in one of your writings, you talk about suppressing feelings. And um, again, you know, if I go back to that kind of macho thing mm-hmm. and, and pushing down those feelings. And one of the examples that you use is being in a fighter fire and uh, performing CPR on a baby mm-hmm. and having the feeling and understanding of what those parents must feel but not being able to show it in any way, shape or form. And I'm guessing during the incident, which is understandable because you have to be in control, but that would lead to, uh, I imagine some flashbacks that would be pretty horrible. Well, the, the challenge that every first responder has is they have to compartmentalize their emotions or, or you know, more simple terms, we, we bury our emotions to be able to do the job. And, and I use that that CPR in a baby as an example to illustrate that. If you know, I was doing CPR on an infant and I allowed myself to feel the emotions that the parents feel, I wouldn't be able to do my job. I wouldn't be able to, to do what's expected of me by those parents. So we end up burying our emotions. The problem is a lot of first responders, we leave those emotions buried for years and years, and eventually they spill out. You, you can't leave them buried forever. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of that as well in the early days of my career, um, as it is for a lot of first responders, that, that there was the suck it up culture. You know, whereas if you, know, you, you would be told, well, if you're having problems with this, maybe being a first responder isn't for you, right? And right. that, that is changing. The, the culture is changing. It, it, there's still some of it there. But yeah, it, it's nice to see that, you know, the mental health uh, and the realities of the job of a first responder is becoming more 
uh, accepted as part of the career that, yeah, you know what, mental health is, is as important as your training, your education, your physical health. And uh, you were also dealing with the time with depression and putting that yeah. all together and the suppression of your emotions mm-hmm. also left you with some thoughts of, of suicide. Yeah. And um, uh, you've experienced that and you know quite a number of firefighters who have taken their life by suicide. Yes. Um, quite often when you're diagnosed with uh, PTSD, there's other comorbidities that come along with that. Uh, depression is, is another um, one of those um, mental health issues that quite often comes along with PTSD. And yeah, my, my, uh, my diagnosis was severe PTSD and severe major depressive disorder. Um, so a lot of the symptoms, or there's a lot of similarity in symptoms between PTSD and depression. So, for example, loss of interest uh, in things you previously enjoyed, that's a symptom of PTSD, but that's also a symptom of depression. Um, unfortunately, thoughts of suicide, yes, that is, is, is a symptom that some people are challenged with, and, and I was no different. And, yeah, in 2019, in June, uh, uh, I made the decision that, you know, taking my life was the way to make all the pain end. Um, fortunately I didn't, (laughs) um, but one of the things that helped, I guess, one of the things that helped save my life was when I reflected on a friend and coworker who died by suicide as well. And, and his funeral was amazingly well attended. Uh, everybody knew what had happened, but nobody really wanted to talk about it. And that's, the stigma surrounding suicide. And in my case, when I decided that, you know, you know, taking my life was the, was the answer. Um, I thankfully thought a lot about that stigma that you could actually feel in the room at, at my, my platoon mates funeral. And it's, yeah, I didn't want my wife and my son and my daughter to have to live with that stigma for the rest of their lives. Uh, I mean, the challenge we have is the stigma around mental health, you know, like PTSD, we're slowly, slowly chipping away at that. But the stigma surrounding suicide is still 10 times worse. Yes, uh, I think that from a PTSD point of view, many people outside of first responders and um you know, people who are, have come back, from, you know, soldiers have come back from Afghanistan. Sometimes people who have not left the country to go to a war zone like Afghanistan will have PTSD. And I think it, from the large scale sort of population, I certainly didn't understand how, P, how, you know, because I didn't understand what PTSD was. I didn't understand how PTSD could lead someone to suicide. And in, in doing, um, talking to people and, and talking to you today, I've, gre- I've gained a greater understanding uh, of, of, of why, you know, if you've got these flashbacks and hypervigilance. And I'm going to say this story, which is just so minor. But the other thing that happened to me was that my mom died in a tragic accident. And I, I didn't see it. Um, 
I, I didn't, you know, see her in, in hospital, but I knew where it happened. And I was waking up every day and my head was just like kind of spinning with this newsreel of seeing it, even though I didn't see it. And it, I wake first thing when I woke up and then many, many times during the day. And uh, my, psychiatrist, my psychiatrist said to me, well, that's PTSD. And I thought, man, if this is PTSD for me and I'm struggling with this, I can't even begin to imagine. And so that took me down a road of trying to understand um, much better what was happening with PTSD. Now, the other thing you talked about was don't reach out, reach in. Yeah, um, that it's, it's one of my, I guess, pet peeves. Um, it seems to be the, 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 the go-to phrase that people who are not suffering say, you know what, we're here for you, you're not alone, just reach out. The problem is not everybody does reach out. I didn't reach out when I should have, when I was, you know, getting ready to take my life. I didn't reach out. I should have. So the reality is not everybody who's suffering with PTSD, anxiety, and depression will reach out. So as a society, are we supposed to just ignore them? No, maybe it's time we actually reach in and, and, and proactively approach mental health and, and supporting people. Yes. And reaching in, and I love that phrase, reach in, it applies across the board, as you said, with, with any kind of a mental illness, because um, I'm, I have bipolar disorder and uh, it's hard sometimes. Um, well, for me, I just always felt it was really important to talk about it because I really felt like people should be able to see me and say, oh, well, she's not a monster or she's not, you know, crazy kind of, uh, of thing because people knew me. Right. Oh, yeah. But it's so difficult to even reach out and, and say, I have depression. I'm depressed. Yep. And today we're dealing with a lot of anxiety. And when it comes to suicide, the, the idea of reaching in, it's okay. If you are concerned about someone, it is okay to talk to them and ask them if it's okay. Don't be afraid because it will not push yeah. them. Take their lives and they actually help them. That's right. I guess the the biggest fear that people have is, well, what do I do if I ask somebody if they're considering suicide and they say yes? Then what do I do? And and that's an uncomfortable spot to to be in. And I think that's one of the reasons why people shy away from actually proactively asking people. And, And you know, the reality is, you know, asking somebody, like, as you mentioned, asking somebody if they're considering harming themselves isn't going to cause them to do it. And, and like you mentioned, it, it may be the one thing that actually does save them. Let's talk briefly about um, first responders. Okay. So, you know, we, we can't talk about PTSD without talking about the last 18 months in mm-hmm. COVID and, and how it's changed. Uh, a few weeks ago, I interviewed an emergency room trauma nurse, and she talked about what it's been like to see this constant, especially over you know the the uh, winter spring when we really ramped up, especially in Ontario, on the number of COVID cases. 
but how many of her uh, co-workers are, they're going to stick with it through COVID, but as soon as COVID is over, they're leaving the profession because they can't take it. The stress was so overwhelming. Do you, do you see that in, in the, in firefighters as well? Uh, first of all, uh, I, uh, I appreciate every single thing that the, the nurse nurses have done during this pandemic. I mean, I, I, sh- I shake it thinking where we would be as, as a province, as a country, if, if the nurses hadn't been doing what they, they've been doing. So yeah, they truly are the, the, I know that the, I know we don't, first responders don't like the term, but they truly are the heroes of the pandemic. Um, the, the, the one thing that, that's one of the, the character traits of most first responders, nurses included, is that it's never really about us. It's always about them and who we serve. And, and the nurses are a perfect example right now, of, you know, where they, 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 they are actually physically, emotionally, mentally spent. And yet they still go back to work every single day. And the reason why they do that is for the people they serve and police officers, paramedics, corrections officers, dispatch, uh, firefighters, they're no different. So it, it, it's, it's, we put aside our needs to deal with the public's needs. And sometimes we do that at our own expense. You're part of the new CAMH, Center for Addiction and Mental Health uh, campaign. To this year, they're connecting um, mental health disorders and addiction with research work they're doing at CAMH. And I think people, if you're not aware of CAMH, CAMH provides healthcare, but it is also a major research institute. Um, into into mental health disorders. And they launched their new campaign on Friday. So September 10th was, as I said earlier, was Suicide Prevention Day. What, where are you making that connection with CAMH and the work they're doing on uh, PS, PTSD? Uh, well, the, the campaign this year sort of builds on their campaign from last year, which was uh, um, not today, right? Not suicide, not today. So that this year, it sort of builds on that. Um, like last year was about sort of bringing awareness to it. And now this year, they're focusing on the prevention side of things. Um, now, with respect to PTSD, there, there's some new exciting research that uh, that's going on at CAMH um, that, that has the potential to help prevent PTSD. Rob, thanks so much for talking to me today. Uh, I recommend, I highly recommend everybody to go to the camh.ca website. So that's C-A-M-H.ca and uh, see the stories like Rob's and, and the research the CAMH is doing to, to move treatment forward. You know what? The, the one thing I say to people is, you know, PTSD and depression doesn't care whether you're a firefighter, police officer, paramedic, corrections officer, dispatch, doesn't care what uniform you wear, doesn't care whether you're male, female, doesn't care. It can can impact anybody and everybody. So uh, I I thank you for, uh, you know, giving me this platform to be able to tell a little bit more about my story and to 
sort of highlight some of the research that CAMH is doing. Hopefully it'll, it, it'll make a difference.